Thank you for connecting to the Bethany Chapel Sermon Link. Our prayer is that you will find the following sermon helpful and inspiring for your spiritual journey. If you are a visitor to this resource, or if you've not attended our church, we would love to meet you in person. Our vision at Bethany Chapel is opening doors to God's truth and love. God bless you as you listen. Well, I'm talking about something today that um, I think we can all relate to as we think about what's going on uh, in the world and particularly with some of the wars that are going on in the world. And it seems like there is no accountability for the choices of the rulers of nations. And Daniel actually addresses that in Daniel chapter four. So I've entitled a message, The God of Those Who Run the World. Pastor John Oachequa tells about watching a 2021 NCAA basketball championship game down in the States a few years ago, or a couple years ago. He says this, I was watching the game intently, texting my friends as I watched. There came a time when Baylor took out one of its star players. Gonzaga started to make this run, and I was infuriated. I'm in a group chat saying, I can't believe they did that. They took out one of their best players. The other team's coming back. This is going to turn out bad. And my friend said in the chat, what are you talking about? He's back in the game. And I realized there was a lag in my internet connection. I wasn't seeing things live. And as the game went on, the, the lag in my internet connection started to get worse. So the announcer's voice would say, he made the shot. But on my screen, there's no shot. The guy's still dribbling. He hasn't gotten towards the bucket yet. Then he would shoot it, and the shot went in, and I realized there's a real lag in my connection. I was so anxious about really wanting us to win when I discovered there was a lag in my connection that I didn't log on again to fix it. I just let it stay there. Do you know why? Because I trusted the announcer's voice. It didn't matter Uh, that what I saw on the screen, I didn't think he was going to lie to me. I know that his word proceeded what was going to happen, so I just let him speak. I trusted what he said. I waited. I didn't worry. I celebrated when he spoke, not when I saw what took place on my screen. This is a really good illustration of the faith that we place in God every day. God is the announcer. He's announced what happened. He's announced what's going to happen. He's announced the way he's going to react to situations in this world, the way he's going to act. He is calling the game. Yet what God is saying doesn't always seem to be in sync with what we see on the screen, the big screen, the really big screen. In fact, there's a significant disconnect at times between what God says and what we believe is happening. The announcer, God says that he is sovereign. One definition of that from desiringgod.org says this is, there are no limits to God's rule. God rules everything. It's part of what it means to be God. He's not God if he doesn't. He is sovereign over the whole world and everything that happens in it. That means everything going on in the world today, genocide going on in the world today, the war in Ukraine, wars in other places, God is sovereign over all of it. 
The announcer says he is sovereign, but when we watch the game, sometimes doesn't seem to line up with his voice. And in our minds, the world doesn't reflect, the big screen doesn't reflect that God is sovereign. Nowhere is this more troubling than in the history of the world's nations and leaders. God is in charge of them because he is sovereign. They are over the billions of people that walk this planet every day. And in many cases, in many cases in the past, in many cases today, it's one of the frustrations we all have with politics around the world. They often do not serve their own people. They often oppress. They often use their positions to enrich themselves. There are parts of the world in some countries, especially in third and fourth world countries, where being in power is akin to winning the lottery. And the whole system of politics is a bribery system from the police all the way to a president. And often the lives of their own mean very little. And yet God is sovereign. One of the best illustrations I can think of this, just the devaluing of human life is from a a great movie called Enemy at the Gates. Anyone seen Enemy at the Gates? Okay, we've got to work on our Bethany viewing habits. Okay, this one I would give at least a four-star pastoral approval. Enemy at the Gates is about the war for Stalingrad during uh, World War II when the Germans and the Russians are fighting for control of Stalingrad. And in that, it's kind of a sniper movie and so on. But in that movie, something very fascinating is portrayed. The Russian soldiers who are trying to retake part of Stalingrad from the German forces are forced by their commanding officers and ultimately the premier uh, to, to sort of advance on German positions. Well, the German positions are well fortified. They've got machine guns waiting in place to cover the streets and any advance these Russians would make. And yet the Russian leaders would, would call their young soldiers to, to charge into, these, into this machine gun fire. And they would, and they would die by the hundreds and thousands. And eventually when they recognized there was no way to overtake the German forces, they would turn to retreat and they would be shot by the Russian forces behind them for cowardice. It's one of the saddest things I've ever seen in a war film. Just the terrible leadership, the complete devaluing of life. The world has a long history of leaders who know little of serving humanity, who know little of valuing the lives of their own citizenry, who know little of humility before the very God who allows them to rule and according to scriptures, puts them in the positions that they are in. And the question I wanna ask today is where's the announcer on this? Because I'm watching the big screen and it seems like there is really no accountability to God. And it seems sometimes that God really isn't even involved at all in these great affairs in the world which we watch every day on TV. Well, Daniel 4 speaks to this. I want you to turn to that. If you don't have a Bible, there should be one in front of you, and it's on page 631. Page 631. It's a fascinating story. Page 631. Now, this is a long passage. We're going to read the first part of it to begin here. Page 631, Daniel chapter 4. 
Nebuchadnezzar, the king to all the peoples, nations, and men of every language that live in all the earth, may your peace abound. Now notice, this is by, written by Nebuchadnezzar. This is the only chapter in the Bible that is actually written by a pagan king. This is, this is put in the scriptures by Daniel. Nebuchadnezzar wrote this, possibly with Daniel's help, but a pagan king wrote this. It has seemed good to me to declare the signs and wonders which the Most High God has done for me. How great are his signs, how mighty are his wonders. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom and his dominion is from generation to generation. I, Nebuchadnezzar, great boy's name if you're looking for one. I, Nebuchadnezzar, was at ease in my house and flourishing in my palace. I saw a dream and it made me fearful and these fantasies as I lay on my bed and the visions in my mind kept alarming me. So I gave orders to bring into my presence all the wise men of Babylon that they might make known to me the interpretation of the dream. Then the magicians, the conjurers, the Chaldeans, the diviners came in and I related the dream to them, but they couldn't make its interpretation known to me. But finally Daniel came in before me, whose name is Belteshazzar, according to the name of my God, and in whom is the spirit of the holy gods, and I related the dream to him, saying, O Belteshazzar, chief of the magicians, since I know that the spirit of the holy gods is in you and no mystery baffles you, tell me the visions of my dream which I have seen, along with its interpretation." Now these were the visions in my mind as I lay on my bed. I was looking, and behold, there was a tree in the midst of the earth, and its height was great. The tree grew large and became strong, and its height reached the sky. It was visible to the end of the whole earth. Its foliage was beautiful, and its fruit abundant, and in it was food for all. The beasts of the field found shade under it. The birds of the sky dwelt in its branches. All living creatures fed themselves from it. I was looking in the visions of my mind as I lay in my bed, and behold, an angelic watcher, a holy one, an angel, descended from heaven. He shouted out and spoke as follows, chop down the tree and cut off its branches, strip off its foliage and scatter its fruit. Let the beasts flee from under it and the birds from its branches. Yet leave the stump with its roots in the ground, but with a band of iron and bronze around it in the new grass of the field. And let him be drenched with the dew of heaven and let him share with the beasts in the grass of the earth. Let his mind be changed from that of a man and let a beast's mind be given to him and let seven periods of time pass over him. This sentence is by decree of the angelic watchers. And the decision is a command of the holy ones in order, this is the purpose, in order that the living may know that the most high is ruler over the realm of mankind and bestows it on whom he wishes. So this is the message for the leaders of the world. The decision is a command of the holy ones in order that the living may know that the most high God is ruler over the rulers of the realm of mankind and bestows it on whom he wishes and sets it over the lowliest of men. This is the dream which I, King Nebuchadnezzar, have seen. Now you, Belteshazzar, tell me its interpretation inasmuch as none of the wise men of my kingdom is able to make known to me the interpretation, but you are able for the spirit of the holy gods is in you. Notice he keeps referring to the holy gods. He's never ceased being a a polytheist, a a king who believes in many gods. First, only two points today, and then we're going to spend some time on application. A pagan king gets a lesson on the reach of the hand of God. Now, this is a, a really unique chapter in the Bible. And again, it's the only part of Scripture, the only chapter that's actually 
written under the authority of a pagan king. Now, now some people at a first glance, when they, when they read this passage, they think Nebuchadnezzar became a believer. You know, he sort of became a Christian. By the time this is over, it looks like he follows the true God. Scholars really don't believe that because he keeps referring to the gods that he worships and so on. So it's, it's likely that he sort of did what we called in the Old Testament syncretism. He, he sort of adopted Israel's God as well and fitted into his polytheistic worldview. He did not become a true follower of God, but God got his attention in a way he never had before. Takes place while Israel is in captivity. Again, in 722 B.C., Assyria had conquered the ten northern tribes. Just a little context here. Now this is in probably 500 and something BC. Babylon had come and captured the southern two tribes, started around 600 BC, I think it finished in about 586 BC. So a lot of the, a lot of the Jews, and Daniel himself and some of his friends have been deported, sort of the best and brightest of the young people were deported into Babylon. It was their way of assimilating cultures into the Babylonian kingdom. They were actually treated extremely well. Babylon believed that if they did this, then as these people rose in rank in their government, Israel itself would be less likely to rebel and want their independence again. Nebuchadnezzar is now the most powerful ruler in the world, at least in the Eastern world. It looks as though Israel's God has been defeated. That's the way it looks because in those cultures, if you won a war, your gods won the war. So it looks like Israel's God has been defeated. It looks like Jehovah of the Old Testament is completely impotent against the powers of Nebo and Marduk and other Babylonian gods. And Nebuchadnezzar has every reason to trust in his pagan gods and to ignore the God of Israel. And the Jews themselves have every reason to ditch the God of the Bible. Because in their minds, the great question is, does God go on the road? You know, all the promises about them being in the Middle East on that spot of ground that God had promised to Abraham and their forefathers, they haven't come true now. They've been deported. They don't have control of their own destiny. So in their minds, this is a good time to think about dropping Jehovah and starting to worship Nebo and Marduk and a few other of Nebuchadnezzar's gods. And that's one reason God wants to break through in the book of Daniel and remain a God of the miraculous so they know that God goes on the road. God makes road trips. He travels with his people. Daniel chapter one, we see the miracle where these young men refuse to adopt the king's diet, the palace diet, and, and yet they are the best and the brightest. In Daniel 2, we see a miracle where Daniel alone can interpret a dream. In Daniel chapter 3, we see a miracle where, where Daniel's friends refuse to bow down to this great image that Nebuchadnezzar builds, and as a result of that, they're thrown in a fiery furnace where they are miraculously preserved. In Daniel chapter 4, we have this new image, and now Daniel miraculously will be interpreting it. God isn't dead. So Nebuchadnezzar has already seen the God of Israel work in many ways, but his loyalty to pagan gods remains, and he's still sort of full of himself, as most leaders are. So in this chapter, God shoots for a bigger impression. And when it's over, this pagan king, now get this, this is really important. This pagan king tells his story of being humbled by the true God to the whole empire. Daniel chapter two, beginning in verse four, through chapter seven, verse 28, is not written in Hebrew. 
It's not written for the Jews. It's written in Aramaic. It's written in the language of the Babylonians. So here you have a pagan king writing in the language of the empire so that all people will understand his interaction with the God of Israel. It's just a fascinating conclusion. Think about that. God ends up with a pagan king writing scripture, telling quite a story. And he begins the story with sort of a conclusion, verses two to three. It seemed good to me to declare the signs and wonders which the Most High God has done for me. How great are his signs, how mighty are his wonders. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, not like my own, not like that of my son. The kingdom of the Most High is an everlasting kingdom. His dominion is from generation to generation. That is a pagan king in an Aramaic language declaring that about the God of Israel to the whole Babylonian empire. And here's the story that he went through. Nebuchadnezzar's journey to a spiritual awakening. Now we read the vision. We're gonna look at its purpose, the interpretation, and the lesson he's supposed to get from that. We read about this dream. It's four parts. He saw this massive tree. And it could be seen from anywhere in the known world. So this is his vision. He's on the plains of, of, of Babylonia. There's this massive tree, which you know, I guess he had sort of a flat earth view. <laughs> because he doesn't understand that, you know, if the earth being round, you really can't see it. Anyway, he didn't think that deeply. Massive tree, could be seen anywhere in the world. And this tree was full of fruit, and it fed man and beast. Birds lodged in it, beasts fed from it. No part of the known world did not benefit or did not feed off of this massive tree. That massive tree represented himself, actually. And then an angel intervenes, and the tree is to be chopped down, but even though the tree is chopped down, the stump is to remain with its roots. It's never going to be uprooted. It's going to be chopped off, but not uprooted. And then this tree sort of becomes like a beast. It moves to sort of a metaphor of a beast eating grass in a field, and this beast is a man who lives as a beast for seven periods of time, which we know to be seven years. That's sort of the vision in a nutshell. This massive tree that feeds man and beast, everything under the earth, this massive tree. It's going to be cut down. The stump will remain. And then there's this picture of a man who's going to live as a beast for seven years. That's the vision in a nutshell. Now, the purpose of that vision was, verse 17, in order that the living may know that the Most High God is ruler over the realm of mankind and bestows it on whom he wishes. The purpose of the vision was to let Nebuchadnezzar know, as a leader, the greatest leader in the world at that point, who's really God and who is not. Who's really God and who just thinks he's in charge? That was the purpose. Well, Daniel had a history of interpreting dreams and visions. The normal group of palace wise men were all brought in, and you have a list of them there, the conjurers, the Chaldeans, the diviners, and so on. This sort of covers all what I would call the, the true sciences as well as the dark sciences, if you will. He's, he's pulling everything from, you know, from the witches to the astronomers in there and trying to figure out, what does this dream mean? 
And nobody could figure it out. Now, actually, scholars really question this because if you and I read this dream, we, we might be able to look at this one and say, this one isn't actually that hard. You know, we come up with a pretty good guess about what this is about. It looks like God's gonna humble Nebuchadnezzar. Now, it says that they couldn't figure it out, but some scholars uh, actually think that it was them telling him we can't figure it out, but they kind of probably knew something was going on with Nebuchadnezzar, and they were a little afraid to tell him what they thought it meant, because that was a good way to lose your head. And I mean that in the literal sense. The interpretation. Nebuchadnezzar was this life-giving, abundant, beautiful tree that seemed to cover the known world. Everything alive was connected to him, ate from his hand, had life in him. This is how Daniel said it. The tree that you saw, verse 20, which became large and grew strong, whose height reached the sky and was visible to all the earth, whose foliage was beautiful and its fruit abundant, and in which was food for all, under which the beasts of the field dwelt, and in whose branches the birds of the sky lodged. It is you, O king, you are the tree, for you have become great and grown strong. Your majesty has become great and reached to the sky and your dominion to the end of the earth. In that the king saw an angelic watcher, a holy one, descending from heaven and saying, chop down the tree and destroy it, yet leave the stump with its roots in the ground, but with a band of iron and bronze around it in a new grass of the field, let him be drenched with the dew of heaven and let him share with the beasts of the field until seven periods of time pass over him. This is the interpretation, O king, and this is the decree of the Most High, which has, become upon, which has come upon my Lord the king that you be driven away from mankind and your dwelling place be with the beasts of the field and you be given grass to eat like cattle and be drenched with the dew of heaven and seven periods of time will pass over you until you recognize that the Most High is ruler over the realm of mankind and bestows it on whoever he wishes. And in that it was commanded to leave the stump of the roots of the tree, your kingdom will be assured to you after you recognize that it is heaven that rules. Therefore, O king, may my advice be pleasing to you. Break away now from your sins. Don't let this happen. Repent. By doing righteousness and from your iniquities, by showing mercy to the poor, in case there may be a prolonging of your prosperity. Wow. God was ready to teach a lesson. Now, I want to stop for a moment here because I, I want to ask the question theologically, why did this happen to Nebuchadnezzar? Because I think you and I would all agree, we, would, we all wish that a few dictators around the world, a few despots, a few bad leaders would have a dream from God tonight, don't we? Like, hey, you're a tree. You're going to be chopped down. And we don't really want the stump and the roots to come back. I would love for about 20 people to get that dream tonight. I would name them, but I would be less popular when we're done. I'm tired of leaders in the world who exploit their people. I'm tired of leaders who murder the opposition, who silence the minorities in their people. I'm tired of leaders who suppress the truth, who own their own media, who don't believe in freedom, who don't believe in the image of God and all of humanity and respect it. I want the dream maker to re-engage and go a little Old Testament on a whole group of people that I live under in this world. 
History is full of murder and genocide and the eerie silence of God in the midst of it. And I'm as disappointed in that as you are. So why is this happening in the fifth century or the sixth century BC? Why is this going on? Why did Babylon, Babylonia, get this sort of visit from God? Why are these miracles going on in Babylonian soil in such a pronounced way? Well, here's what I think is going on then versus now a little bit. Here's what I think is going on. I want you to just think through what the Old Testament is. The Old Testament is, is, is Jewish from Genesis chapter 12, so 12 chapters into the book, all the way to the end of the Old Testament, it's about Israel. It was a theocracy. God was their king. God was their warrior king. If they obeyed him, they would literally win their wars. They would prosper materially, spiritually, socially, in every way. They'd be able to defend their borders. It was a theocracy. Theocracy means, theos means God. God is king. He's their warrior king. The earthly kings were just mediatorial kings like David and Solomon and others. They, they stood between God and Israel, but God was their king. That was their theology. Israel was supposed to be a light to the nations. Now Israel's been defeated and deported, and in a sense, God doesn't have his light to the world functioning. But God travels. God goes on the road, and where his people have been taken to and are, are in captivity, God wasn't going to sit this out just because Israel is in captivity. And I believe that's why these miracles keep happening, even to a pagan king, so that where God's people are, people know that the God of heaven rules, no matter what it looks like in the world around us. So Daniel tells the interpretation. In fact, he begins, I didn't read this part, but he's kind of like, Nebuchadnezzar, I really wish I didn't have to tell you this. I really wish this would happen to your enemies instead of you. Like, I like you, but Nebuchadnezzar would be cut down. He is that tree. For seven years, he would be mentally deranged. And incidentally, scholars have identified a seven-year period of Babylonian history where Babylon stopped all aggression towards other foreign enemies. And it was likely this time. He would be restored after that seven years, and his power would be returned. He just needed to learn one thing. Verse 26 your kingdom will be assured to you after you recognize that it is heaven that rules. Heaven being a, a word for representing the true God. That was the lesson. Now unfortunately for Nebuchadnezzar, he was not an auditory learner. Hearing it didn't make a difference. Daniel told him, repent, change now. Maybe this won't happen to you. And in fact, that's the case. It took 12 months before this actually started happening, according to the text. He wasn't an auditory learner, though. He needed the experience, a little hands-on classroom experience. Field trip, literally field trip. So one year later, 
he began experiencing something that is a real psychological phenomena. It's called boanthropy. It's where a person believes they are a bovine, ox or cow. That's a real thing. He began to experience it. And he basically became deranged, insane in our minds. He lived as an animal for seven years. He thought he was a bovine. He was humbled by God. And after seven years, he snapped out of it. He acknowledged the God of heaven and his rule was restored. And there is a seven year period in part of the sixth century where you basically have silence about what Babylon is doing around the world and scholars believe that's probably when this happened. Verse 34, at the end of that period, I, Nebuchadnezzar, raised my eyes towards heaven, and my reason returned to me, and I blessed the Most High and praised and honored him who lives forever. For his dominion is an everlasting dominion. His kingdom endures from generation to generation. In other words, God is greater than me. He's on the throne always. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing. He does according to his will in the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of earth, and no one can ward off his hand or say to him, what have you done? At that time, my reason returned to me, and my majesty and splendor were restored to me for the glory of my kingdom, and my counselors, my nobles, began seeking me out. So I was reestablished in my sovereignty, and surpassing greatness was added to me. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise, exalt, and honor the king of heaven, for all his works are true and his ways just, and he is able to humble those who walk in pride." Wouldn't you love to hear that in a world leader's address? A few applications. First, a sovereign God is on the throne, but he has not crushed Satan's influence yet. As we look in this world around us and we see people massacred, we see genocide, we see injustice, one of the things we wonder with a sovereign God is how come God's rule is not more evident? Well, the scriptures clearly teach that God is in charge. Nothing happens outside of his control or oversight. But that doesn't mean he takes control of everything and he is its first cause. He allows much of this world to choose its own fate. He allows evil. He allows free will, which means there's going to be evil. He allows Satan's influence. In fact, part of the fate of nations is naturally a part of the spiritual warfare in our world because of the role of Satan and his minions in this world. Now, I don't look for a demon behind every corner. I'm not that kind of guy theologically, but Jesus referred to Satan as the ruler of this world. The apostle Paul called him the God of this age. The cross broke the power of sin, it broke the power of death, it broke the power of Satan, but it has not been fully put in place yet. So there's a spiritual battle in this world and governments are ground zero battleground because they affect the billions of people that live under them. It's a battleground for values that honor God's image in all of humanity, or not. That expect law and order that reflects there is right and wrong, or not. They use power for good, or not. That celebrate truth and freedom, or not. 
that recognize that their positions exist for the betterment of mankind, not the selfish advancement of their friends or donors, or not. Here's one way to look at this. When Duke Energy officials got to the bottom of a power outage, nature was to blame. It wasn't wind or rain or thunder or earthquakes or even, as sometimes the case, human nature. Like Adam and Eve in the garden, it started with a snake. A snake got into the electrical equipment in a local substation, which ended up causing an electrical fire that created a massive outage. By 10 in the morning, more than 1,400 people had lost power because a snake got in a power box and got electrocuted. Well, the serpent has always positioned himself at the center, the epicenter, the infrastructure of what would affect this world the most. That's why he was in the garden with Adam and Eve. With Adam and Eve. Yeah, Adam and Eve. New name for Eve. Adam and Eve. That's why he was there, to wreck the plan of God, to wreck humanity. And of course, the leaders, the nations of this world are a battleground between good and evil. Second, God desires good government for all people. God wants good government. Romans 13, 4, and earlier in Romans 13, it says every government that exists on the earth comes from God. He's the sovereign God. But then it says in verse 4, it is a minister of God to you for good. Government is a part of the common grace of God, the good things that happen to all of humanity. We are better with government than without it. But government is to exist for our good. It goes on to say it should punish evil and it should praise good. That's its purpose. To better the lives of the people over whom it rules. And the assumption, the implicit assumption is that it would punish evil as God defines evil. And that it would praise good as God defines good. That's why government exists. And Paul wrote that while he lived under Roman authority, which was not exactly always good government. Proverbs 14, 34. Now this is written in the Old Testament. Some might say, well, this is just about Israel. It's just about a theocracy. Not at all. Solomon says this. Righteousness exalts a nation, but sin is a reproach to any people. He's not talking about Israel. He's talking about government and righteousness in all governments. Sin is a reproach to any people. God wants good government for all people. He wanted it for Israel. He wanted it for Assyria. He wanted it for Babylonia. In fact, he demanded it. Think about this. The humbling of Nebuchadnezzar was twofold. It was because of his pride but it was also because of the way he treated his own people. Daniel chapter four, verse 27. When Daniel has delivered the message, he says to the king, may my advice be pleasing to you. Break away now from your sins by doing righteousness. He doesn't say by humbling yourself. By doing righteousness and from your iniquities by showing mercy to the poor. There's also a humbling of himself that he acknowledges, but Daniel says what God wants you to do is start operating your government with righteous standards and have compassion for the less fortunate. Do not let them be oppressed because God wants all people to live in those kinds of nations under those kinds of rulers. Third, 
Leaders are accountable to the God who sovereignly allowed their ascension to power. I've been to Cambodia on missions trips. We were involved in all kinds of things in Cambodia, helping with a lot of orphanages, things like that. In my past, Pol Pot was basically a dictator, I think 1970s, I believe, maybe early 80s, massacred people by the hundreds of thousands, millions. If you wore glasses in Cambodia, you would be viewed as a part of the educated and they would kill you because you wore glasses. They wanted to eliminate anyone with an education who could influence future generations. So they basically wiped out the schooled people of Cambodia and turned it into a fourth world country. God allowed Pol Pot to ascend to power and he will be accountable. as will Hitler, as will people who bomb civilians, who bomb hospitals, who persecute ethnic groups in the Middle East and in the Far East. They'll be responsible for laws that do not protect life, that of the unborn and that of the old and that of the mentally ill both in the United States and Canada as well. All leaders will be held accountable to the God who put them in power. And finally, Christians are to be the conscience of all government. Now I've gotten into debates with a few Bethany people over this and people wherever you go with Christians, but we don't all agree about the Christians' influence in government. And there's two extremes. You could have a nation full of Christians that eventually gets enough power to sort of control aspects of government, or you can choose that there be no influence whatsoever from Christians. And and in most cases, you're gonna have something in between, but Christians need to be the conscience of the government. And if we're never involved in politics, that is problematic, because as one Christian leader said, those who do not believe they should be involved in politics will be ruled by those who do. Those who do not believe Christians should be involved in politics will be ruled by those who do. It does us no good to complain about the world we live in when you have Christians who believe we shouldn't even vote or express our views to the people who are in power. We need to be involved. Christians should run for office. We need to have a voice enough and not be afraid that even though our opinions may continue to be more and more in a minority, a part of being salt and light in our society is telling leaders what we think and what we believe is the right way to govern a nation no matter the consequence. But God, we thank you for your word. God, we we look at this world, we have instant access to things that are happening directly on the other side of the world right now. And we're appalled and saddened by what we see. We're also appalled and saddened by what we see every day in our own lives right around us in the Western world. And we recognize that this world is an incredibly imperfect place, and even though we know that you are a sovereign God, we long for a day when you rule directly. And we don't have the intermediary, imperfect world that we live in 
God, we pray that righteousness would come to this world. We pray for all leaders that they would have a sense of their divine appointment, that they would recognize that their power comes from you, and that they would value the lives of all people around them, especially those that they rule over, because we believe you are the God of heaven. You are their God. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening to this sermon. We hope you found it connected you to the God of truth and love who we worship and serve at Bethany Chapel. If you have any questions or want to connect to any of our pastors, please go to our Bethany Chapel app and choose Connect or go online to bethanychapel.com and click Come. Thanks again and God bless you.